You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is a an episode out of its moment, uh, which is the best kind, I think. Uh, some of you remember that while uh, David Grubbs and Michael Farmer were on hiatus while they began their high school teaching days, uh, I assembled some crack teams of uh, ad hoc panelists to talk about some things that I wanted to talk about. And this is going to be one of those episodes, even though... David and Michael and I are doing the other episodes, so just don't think too much about it and enjoy what we've got going on. Uh, this crack team, these ad hoc hosts, uh, are joining me. Well, I should I, I should have had a verb in there, shouldn't I? But at any rate, one of them is Katie Grubbs uh, from the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, Katie, uh, if you want to tell our listeners something about yourself, that's fine, but certainly tell us how you've been. I'm doing pretty well. Um, I am enjoying some alone time in the mornings for the first time in 10 years because my youngest just got into preschool. So from eight to 12, I'm by myself uh, to do my grading for my online classes. Um, I am an uh, adjunct professor of English for Houston Baptist University. I teach fully online. Um, and so that's kind of one part of my life. The rest of my time I spend caring for the four children I have with David Grubbs of this podcast. And that's me. Right on. And Carter, honestly, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and uh, confess my uh, inadequate preparation here. I don't even know what part of the country you're in. So tell us a bit about yourself and tell us how you're doing. Sure, sure. Um, I am uh, coming to you from eastern Washington in the city of Spokane um, from my daughter's bedroom at the moment because it's the only quiet place in the house. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm... Um, I was a teacher for some years, but now I'm a, um, I've planted a church. I'm an Anglican priest out here in Washington, planted a church a couple of years ago and I'm bivocational. So I, um, when I'm not playing, uh, doing church work, I am swinging a hammer in carpentry, um, <laughs> which has very little to do with the kinds of things we talk about on these podcasts. <laughs> um, but, uh, except for the sectarian review and, sometimes, yep. <laughs> Uh, yes, indeed, which is why Danny has had me on a few times, I suspect. <laughs> very good, um, very good. But yeah, just uh, just uh, uh, sci-fi aficionado and happy to be here. To All right, sounds like a winner. Well, listeners, if you want to hear a really good conversation about The Expanse that brings in the novels and also offers some really insightful, insightful character examinations and also features a lot of people who are really in love with Amos, uh, you can go back and listen to the Christian Feminist Podcast episode 156. Uh, I'm going to try not to duplicate much of what they said for the sake of the listeners with the good taste to listen to both. So our conversation in this episode is going to focus on the ways in which the series came to a close once sci-fi yielded production to Amazon Prime. So I'll go ahead and say a couple of things as warnings here first. Uh, we are going to spoil with impunity. So if you want to finish watching the series before you listen, just go ahead and pause this podcast now. Go watch however many hours of Amazon Prime you need to watch and then come back and listen to us. Second warning, I have not read the novels. So if either of my hosts go there and both of you, by the way, are free to do so, I'm not going to be part of those conversations. So uh, if I drop out, it's because we are uh, talking about the novels. All right, so let's get started now. Um, Carter, I mean, from the early seasons of this show, I've been enjoying the references to Don Quixote, which are not exactly subtle. And I've always enjoyed the thought that the Rosinante crew divided the roles. Uh, Holden and Nagata and Miller kind of shared the mantle of the Man of La Mancha, while Amos and Alex split the role of Sancho Panza. And if you think I'm wrong about that, just roll with me for one moment. 
before their last grand voyage together in the finale season, so in the penultimate season, both Alex and Amos return to their origins, and like Sancho Panza, they both discover that there's a price to pay for their life of adventure and for their journey with the idealistic knight. All right, so now, Carter, you can tell me by allegorizing is off target, but what are some interesting moments that you want to highlight when Alex returns to Mars and Amos to Baltimore? Sure. Um, and it's an interesting, interesting way to approach it. Um, and I, I mean, I, you're, you're, I think, I don't think you're wrong uh, because it's Amos and Alex are definitely the realists of the, uh, <laughs> of the crew. Um, um, they're, uh, they don't seem to have any high fluting ideas about what they're going to accomplish. They, uh, they just seem to be there because they sort of admire and respect the ones who are idealistic even if they think it's um, even if they don't fully buy it, but um, we definitely see that play out a bit. I think when they, when they go home. So Amos in particular, um, I think it was fascinating that we got to go back and see his sort of criminal CD underworld um, background, um, how he has to, <laughs> uh, well, he has to uh, survive after the the asteroid attacks um but uh i think it's it's what was much more interesting is when he's trying to uh do that with um with his former cr criminal uh friends and particularly when they go to the island so there's this they go to this uh, rich people island this uh uh um place for the for the uber wealthy and uh, because we're trying to find a rocket ship to get to to uh, to get up to the moon, <laughs> and I um and there was a this really interesting human dynamic there because uh, Peaches, as he calls her, one of the the Mao daughters, is there, and um, she has to be the moral guide for Amos because his realism just makes it it, it, it almost makes him want to go straight back into that underworld uh, mode where if people get in the way he'll just kill them. If people are, are, you know, like there's some people who ask for help and he, he's like, well, not my problem. And she goes, well, no, we, we actually do need to help these people. Um, so it, it, um, it, it's mostly interesting to me as character moments for Amos, because you start, I think to, to see him like gaining more uh, of a moral sensibility or a moral worldview himself um, because uh, he's seeing the contrast between his, the people of his past and the people of his present and what they're telling him to do. So it was, um, th that was a moment that stood out to me from, from, from the Amos storyline in um uh, um, on earth. Um, before I talk about Alex, does anyone want to add something to that? Katie, do you want to I jump in there? I do think it's interesting. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting because Amos is always a person on the show who seems to get his moral code from other people. It's external. So when he, we first meet him, he's, you know, super, super bonded with Naomi and she seems to be giving him his, his direction and his kind of more, she's his moral compass. And then at a certain point to me, he seems to shift that to Holden. Um, and then he goes down to earth and um and you're right carter i think then he kind of shifts again and and because she's the person he's with the person he's in a, his closest relationship at that time clarissa becomes kind of his moral compass but that's it's also really interesting to me as a development because she's only able to be that for him because he has very deliberately liberated her right he redeemed her in a sense, like not in the spiritual sense, but like he got her out of her punishment that she was suffering that she, you know, for the, for the crimes that she committed. So he kind of liberates her and saves her. And then she kind of, what she does for him is she tends to begins to soften him in that way. Um, and kind of try to, um, try to help him see the points of view of other people, though we also see that she can also, kill um and i mean i know i'm not talking about earlier um when she was trying to get revenge um and all this kind of stuff before she um was put in prison but um there's a moment when they're down on earth when a guy is threatening them threatening amos and she you know she uses her mods she uses her kind of super strength and i mean just 
obliterates this guy. It's a brutally kills him. Yeah, brutally (laughs) kills him. Yeah, and and but it's because of that threat to Amos, and so she seems to be a person who does have a strong moral compass, but also a person who can be very ruthless if someone that she's decided to protect or someone that she's decided she cares about is threatened. There's another moment later on when they're back up in space when um, she uses her mods again to save Bobby. There's somebody who's about to take a shot at Bobby from behind and um, and she does it again. And so uh, it is interesting, that, but I, I absolutely agree with you that she's, um, she's kind of changing him and it's interesting that that is all happening while he's in the environment, like you said, that would be most likely to cause him to just go totally back to his kind of feral roots. And I think I think that's why um, I think she's more effective in some ways than Naomi and Holden because she's not an idealist either. Um, they're idealists, and so um, while Amos gets his moral code from them, I think he also sees himself as balancing them out <laughs> as being like the counter to um, to their idealism. Like he's like, well, you mm-hmm. guys, he kind of sees himself as like, okay, you guys need me too, because sometimes you don't get done what needs to get done. But uh, I wonder if she is more effective in sort of breaking through to him and making his morality less external because she's not an idealist at all. And she is willing to kill and be ruthless, but at the same time, holds on to you know trying to pursue what is right and what is good and so in a sense he he she's not he's not balancing her out she's just a more mature person and he can kind of recognize that in a way that he can't with the others yeah and and katie i think you're underselling the spirituality here i mean you know i mean in a very literal sense i mean she is in a dante-esque prison uh from which nobody emerges once they're condemned and he goes, and I mean, it's a harrowing of hell that brings her out of there. And it's mm, after yeah. that, that she gains the ability uh, to become his moral compass. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that there is absolutely something Dantean about this uh, at the very least. And, you know, I'd say that, I mean, something decidedly spiritual is going on between Clarissa and Amos. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but I, yeah, that's actually very true. And I, and if I remember right too, she, she doesn't feel that she deserves it either. No, right? she absolutely no, doesn't. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, which I, is, yeah, which is interesting. You know, she's a, she's a, she's a, was a great villain who then becomes a great part of the group of heroes because she, the, of that humility, because she well, recognizes And that's that. one of the great scenes in the penultimate season is when Amos, you know, comes to Holden and says, now at one point you said you owe me a favor and no matter what it is, you'll do it. Right. <laughs> And, and Holden mm-hmm. says, yeah, I said that. He's like, all right, come here, Peaches. <laughs> and, 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 you know, again, spiritually, because I mean, I, I look for the spiritual, you know, when I'm looking at, you know, narrative literature, right. Um, I mean, what you've got is the reincorporation of the traitor uh, into the beloved community. And I mean, you know, the crew of the Rossi is absolutely the, the, the core community in this entire series, at least the, you know, the televised version, like I said, I haven't read the novels. And so, I mean, you know, she becomes part of the central community after being the assassin who is trying to take out the head of that community. And I mean, man, I mean, like if there are better redemption stories, I'm hard pressed to come up with them. It's like mm. a, it's like a Judas being welcomed into uh, the apostolic community. If oh, that's absolutely to right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean <laughs> like, yeah, there's yeah. something, there's something Dostoevskyan <laughs> about that, right? I mean, you know, it is the murderer who you know doesn't end up getting written out of the story, uh, but who ends up you know at the core of the story. Well, and well, I think one reason that can happen is because. With the which I mean, maybe this is a good transition to talk about Alex. With the exception of Alex, everybody in that kind of core crew eventually has either killed someone or at least been indirectly responsible for the deaths of other people. So I think it would be difficult for them to say, Well, we can't have her here, she's a killer. When you know, do you really want to go there? I don't know. I mean, Alex is the only one I can think of on that ship who hasn't at least indirectly caused someone's death, but I could be remembering that wrong. No, no, yeah, I think that's you, about right. I think that's yeah. about right. And you don't want to be the one throwing uh, the first to throw a stone on the glass spaceship. So, uh, <laughs> nice. they're, absolutely, they're, nice. <laughs> they're definitely, uh, yeah. None of them are, are uh, guilt free. And Alex is an interesting contrast to Amos because, in a way, they're both 
Okay, so Alex goes back to Mars, Amos goes back to Earth, and yes, very nice transition, Katie. Um, uh, they're both going back to their families in a sense. So Amos, Amos is is like basically the only family he had prior to the to the um, the Canterbury and the and the Rossi, the ships he served on, are what were the criminals in his path, right? That was his family, much like it is in organized crime situations, or at least as far as television tells us. So he returns to his family and has to face the music because apparently at some point in the past, he was told, if you return to Earth, we're going to kill, I'm going to kill you. And he does it anyway. Um, Alex, on the other hand, he's not returning... He's returning to a family that he effectively abandoned, um, and he's not accepted back, um, which is interesting. Amos is accepted back, essentially, because he's they're able to help each other. He's able to get his old friends off of Earth before it gets demolished by these asteroids. But uh, Alex does not get a warm welcome. He wants to go back to see his wife and his son, but he has left so long ago and been gone for so long. Um, apparently not really even contacting them that often, that his wife, rightly so, tells him, no, <laughs> you don't get to you don't get to come back when you want. And I, I think this is in really interesting because in in a lot of adventuring stories, science fiction or fantasy stories, um, this is the part we never see, right? <clears throat> People go off adventuring, they defeat the big bad evil guys, as we say in the D&D community, you know, they, they accomplish all these great things. What we never see is when they go back home and you realize, oh, someone actually pays the cost for them going out and, and doing all of this and, and being out there in space and having adventures. Like, that's not that's a young man's game in a certain sense. Um, but the problem is, is that it, it's not always, and there's a cost, there's a cost to these things. And um, I think that's a really fascinating, it, it, you know, it really forces both Amos and Alex back to their found family, the Rocinante, but for different reasons, Amos sees that, it, you know, of course that his old family is not really what he wants to be a part of anymore, but um for Alex, he really doesn't have much there um, besides drummer. And I think one of the most interesting parts, and then I'll finish up here with, with um, Alex back on Mars is when he's trying to party with drummer after his, um, after his wife gives him the boot, he, he tries to get, um, have like, have fun with drummer. They go to this country Westerny bar or something, which does not make me want to live on future Mars, but um <laughs> Hey, and Carter, it, do you mean, do you mean Bobby? Bobby, I'm sorry, not Bobby. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. She, um, she's totally. Draper. It's very similar. Yeah. Bobby Draper, yeah, that yes, was my okay. bad. Sorry about that. No, that's okay, don't yes, worry about it. Thank you for the correction. Not, drummer doesn't party with anyone. Um, <laughs> Definitely not. Drummer bar parties with a bottle of whiskey by herself in a room. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that, that moment with Bobby where he's like being all, he's basically be, like trying to, He's trying to force himself to be happy, trying to force himself to have this superficial um, um, sort of uh, joyousness. Um, and he's, he, and she just sees right through it and cuts right through it. She's like, you, she tells him he's full of crap essentially and walks out of the bar because he's just unable to face the reality of what he's failed to do and the consequences of it, which is a really powerful moment. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, um, Alex has been my Sancho Panza figure for most of the time I've been watching the show, precisely because, I mean, that's one of those details that Cervantes writes in there is that Sancho leaves a wife and children to go adventuring with Don Quixote. So, I mean, you know, the, that, that parallel struck me immediately. And of course, then, you know, when it was his impulse to call the spaceship the Rosinante, I said, oh, okay, so we really are... Uh, we really are doing Don Quixote here. <laughs> um, I I really like that too because he's he's not depicted as a guy who, of necessity, has left his wife and child to you know do some grand adventure that's going to save all the universe. Though things like that happen in the story, but when we meet him, he's already been away from his family for years purely because he enjoys the work. 
You know, it's right, not right. This this is not a, he's not a. I mean, he is a soldier, but he's not the kind of deployed soldier that, you know, where he hates every minute away from his family. You know, right. he's come home before and left again. He's this is a terrible analogy. And I'm sorry to anybody who doesn't parent preschoolers, but he actually makes me think of um, Danny, the dog's dad on Peppa Pig. <laughs> who who is a sailor and he's gone for, he's been gone for years you know sailing the seven seas and he comes home and says i'm done traveling i'm going to stay home with my wife and kids and then every time you see him after that he's sad which is actually kind of dark for a preschool children's series like it's played for laughs but that's alex he doesn't actually want to be home and so yeah it's it it totally makes sense that when he tries to return that his family doesn't want him and i really like that they didn't give you any closure for that there's no reconciliation he just has to live with it the consequences. Well, they also totally downton abbeyed him at the end of the penultimate season. Well, sure. Oh, for, for really good, for really good for reasons. Really, yeah. For really um, good reasons that had nothing to do with plot. Yes. <laughs> right, and, I right. mean, you know, and, and they give you, and I mean, he gets this kind of, you know, he gets a little bit of redemption that he goes out saving somebody else. Right. It's, I mean, it's, he doesn't, he doesn't get a kind of redemption arc with his own family relationships, but the way that they killed him off enabled a different character in the core group of, of characters to survive. So, you know, okay. But, um, but yeah, I, that, that country Western bar scene is like, so is so hard to watch and, but it was such a, a well-written scene. Indeed. Indeed. Well, Katie, uh, you're one of the best I know at examining literary characters and their screen actors. Uh, so I want to tee you up and just let you go to town on Marco Inaros. So for me, this character is a right-wing villain fantasy of the unthinking and amoral terrorist. And Kean Alexander's performance is Kenneth Branagh on, amphet on amphetamines doing his best Jar Jar Binks imitation. But I have a hunch there's more to the here than what I'm seeing. So educate me on Marco Inaros, will you? Well, I'm going to say right now, I also have not read the books. So I'm, this is just TV Marco that I'm going to talk about. Um, he, to me, he is probably the least likable character in the last three seasons. I do think that your description of him is warranted. Um, I do think there is a little bit of depth to be found. If we're talking about, you know, you were talking about Don Quixote. If we're talking about consistent references, the key references with him are Alexander the Great references. Yeah. yeah. Um, his ship is called the Pella. And he has um, the hair. He has the Alexander the Great he hair. Does. <laughs> uh, yeah, he does. I didn't even think about that. There's also a season five. And please believe that I didn't necessarily notice these the first time around. I made sure that I researched him well before we talked about this. But there's also a season five episode called Gagamela, um, where uh, about a, a historical, that's the name of historical battle, where Alexander the Great triumphed against the odds. Um, and so there's all these kind of references. And there's two or three different ways you can take him. You could see him as a kind of, Trumpian, Trumpian figure who's just all about the adulation and wants people to think that he's amazing. But I don't think that's exactly right. Um, because there are times when he does things that uh, will make everyone who is already inclined to follow them, who's a belter, not give him adulation, not give him um, love or applause. Like when he deliberately takes out, he, he takes out series, the series base um leaves bombs gets out of there and blows it up after he's gone to try as a way to try to take out the earth and the mars uh, troops that are now occupying it but there are still belters there right so um he's he's this weird hybrid between a guy who seems to want applause and acclaim but also kind of a straight-up terrorist and another way i would describe him is that he to me he's a narcissist masquerading as a revolutionary like he's got this cause which seems noble to try to help the belters get theirs because they've been oppressed by earth and mars and that's kind of his and um so and i don't i don't remember hearing this on the series but I've, I, I read it when i was researching him today that he's supposed to have kind of grown up an orphan on one on palace which is one of these belter bases in kind of poverty and suffering and oppression and this is supposedly what radicalized him to try to fight for a better life for the belters but from the beginning that his way of doing that has included things like explosions, straight up killing people. Um, he manipulated Naomi into writing some sort of code that overrides reactor cores and then used it against her knowledge or without her knowledge to, to kill like 500 people on a, a ship that was docked at Luna. And so that, which is, it's at that point, I believe that she has realizes this guy's too extreme and she gets out 
um, because it's just too much. That's not what she signed up for. She She's kind of positioned as the true believer, the person who truly wants builders to have a better life, not as a person who's using that cause to just gain power. Um, and he also, I think, seems like a person who enjoys violence for its own sake. You know, he comes up with this really genius plan to cloak asteroids and fling them at Earth. And, and he enjoys wreaking that destruction on Earth. He has no interest in kind of a better life for all of the solar system. Um, you know, he's not looking for belters to be able to take their place alongside Earth and Mars and everybody thrive together. He, he wants to lift up, he says he wants to lift up belters by pushing down um, and harming these other, these other groups. Um, so yeah, um, and having said all that, listeners, if you haven't watched the series, you might be thinking, why would anybody ever follow this guy? But in, within the story, I mean, he's, he can be magnetic and he can sound inspiring. He has a way with words. There's a particular big speech he makes near the end of the series where he's trying to rally all remaining belters to his cause. Um, that is, it's a good speech. I mean, you know, if you were someone who was downtrodden and you were a belter and you were there and you want, really wanted to, um, something to believe in, uh, you, I think you would go for that. But I think that in the end, the way that, the biggest way that you see that he's, he's missing empathy, he's missing something on the inside is that the way that he treats his own son and other people who are the closest to him, um, you know, he will cover up his own son's commission of murder when his son is, is, is being faithful to him and loving to him and pumping him up. But when that same son says, I think what you're doing is wrong, his kid's now dead to him. And so he doesn't, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure what else I want, necessarily wanted to say about him, but it's he's an interesting character. And I think that he could have been even better written, um, but I, maybe you don't want to make him too well written or we might forget why he's the bad guy. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and and Carter, I mean, oh, sorry, he, go ahead. well, no, 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 I just I, I just want to segue over to you, because, I mean, to my eye, he is a character who is surrounded in this series by morally and personality complex characters right uh and then you get this you know dark-skinned terrorist figure whose accent shades into gungan with some frequency and i'm just thinking okay i mean like if (laughs) they just need a a complete you know psychopath for the last couple seasons so that everyone could hate the same person and we could all go out you know with a good old you know 1984 style you know three minute hate mustache twirling villain to uh yeah yeah to despise yeah um i i actually okay so the the performance of marco may be more or less mustache twirly as as noted but there's a i would say a couple i'm gonna try to play devil's advocate here or or, um the marco anaris's advocate for a moment um and that's uh That's what I think that maybe it's a, it's a bit more complex in the sense that, well, okay, so let me start here. Is there any revolutionary leader who is not a bit of a narcissist um, and a brutal, like, murderer? Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure we can point to too many figures, sans, you know, maybe a George Washington type, who, who don't often devolve into that, um, that kind of... Uh, that kind of mode. So I'm thinking here of uh, who's the guy who's on all the t-shirts. Um, oh, Che Guevara. Jay? Yeah. Yeah. That one. And, or, or, or even uh, uh, Fidel Castro. Um, these are thoroughly narcissistic revolutionary leaders who are magnetic and charismatic and a, and brutal murderers and able to also get things done. And I think that's often why the people follow him. See, the, the thing with Marcos is I think he he's utterly, he is a narcissist, I think textbook. But I think he the thing about that type of person is that they're actually very good at convincing themselves that they also, uh, that they believe in what they're doing. And I, I think rather than actually believing in what he's doing, I think he's convinced himself that he believes in what he's doing. And but it's really vengeance like vengeance is really what he's after he he he's seeking to hurt not to build anything better really um he doesn't know what to do after um and in fact i think in in a very uh i've been uh 
I've been reading a, a, a biography of Napoleon, and I think Marco is a is an it would be an interesting person to to uh, place alongside <laughs> as a character study. He, he's the kind of person who wants to tear the system down and effectively put himself on the top of the new system. Um, he he's not looking for a democratic belter society. He's looking to be the dictator, um, much like a Castro or. Uh, Saddam Hussein or what have you and um, so yeah I think I think he's a bit more complex than 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 your typical mustache twirling villain um, even though the per performance wise he he can come off I think a little a little too blunt um, maybe that's the writing maybe that's the performance I'm not sure uh, but I do think there's I do think there's a little bit more complexity there that that makes him um, that makes him interesting um, and 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 let it let it also be said that all revolutions are bloody and bad, um, and we see people on the different sorts of spectrums that want freedom for the belt. You know, we have Naomi, we have Drummer, um, and we have uh, Marco. Um, and while Drummer and Naomi may you know they they stop at a certain point, right? They stop at a certain point morally. Um, Marco might be the Nietzsche who is telling them, if you actually want this, then here's what you have to do. <laughs> if you want to be, you know, if you want to be the self-determining overman or uh, you've, you've, you've got to let go, you've got to go beyond good and evil. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, they're not willing to do that. But um, that, again, makes him maybe the more honest one. What do you think? I, I love the idea that he's convinced himself that he believes it. <laughs> I think because that, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, and you, I think the way that the actor plays the role, he maybe does a good job with that. I, I hadn't thought about that before, but because it, it's you don't necessarily see him kind of give these give the impassioned speech and then just kind of switch off like, OK, that's done can go back to being totally selfish, you know, or whatever. Like I, I could see where he maybe has even convinced himself. And I do I like your idea, too, of the of the spectrum of what they're willing to do for the cause. And you could see that too in conversations that Drummer has with Naomi, very heated arguments about Drummer being disturbed by how much Naomi seems to have, to her view, gone over to the side of Earth and Mars um, and away from the Belter cause. So I like that a lot. Fair enough. Well, Carter, I want, I want, I want you to talk about another uh, feature that, uh, again, I, this is turning into my uh, expanse therapy session and you two are uh, helping me process it. <laughs> but uh, I had to read around online and listen to the Christian Feminist podcast before I could figure out what in the world was going on with the resurrection dogs on Laconia. After all, that storyline doesn't link up explicitly to what's going on with the rest of the final season until the, really the closing minutes of the last episode. So were those scenes just fan service for folks who had read the novels? Did they somehow comment on what was going on on this side of the ring? What's going on with the resurrection dogs, Carter? Help me here. I'm going to try, but I had to do the same as you. Um, <laughs> uh, I've only read the first novel. So, um, I, you know, if, if I had had time to prep for the episode, I would have slammed through the next few, but um, they're rather large. So, <laughs> um, I, so I'll, I'll give it a shot, but um, hopefully you and Katie also have some perspective to help flesh this out a little bit. Um, what I was getting from the resurrection dogs from uh, is uh, really an, a further exploration of the proto molecules uh, um, uh, abilities or uh, side effects, whatever you want to call them. Um, so what we've learned from, from the, the series as a whole about the proto molecule is that it basically it re it re, I don't know, formats people's uh, genetic structure. It, it, it sort of becomes a hybrid with whatever it touches, right? Whatever it touches, wherever, you know, it, it, it bonds to it and then transforms that thing into something new, right? We've seen it with the, 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 um, the military grade hi uh, hybrids. Um, we've seen people doing experiments with it. We've seen it on whole planets. Well, well that, that's, 
the the resurrection dogs as we're calling them seems to be a function of that it's the it's a it's a product of the protomolecules bonding to laconia um it's created this hybrid creature um that then is able to pass the protomolecule on to others which um so we see it you know resurrect a bird and we see the daughter whose name escapes me um wanting to use it to resurrect her little brother of course the question always is is what does it become what does the thing become once this creature has revived it um so so like what is her brother going to be is he going to still be human or is he going to become something else um something different as a result of this um as far as what it has to do with the other side of the ring, the most I could really determine is that it's it's by way of analogy or allegory, and it's um, it's building on this sort of it seems to be building this mythos of what the other side of the the, the ring gates means for humanity. Um, it, it, are they going to just continue to do what they always do and have you know war and fight over resources um and uh space or is there going to be a new form of humanity that evolves there and it the resurrection dog seemed at least to me seemed to be um seemed to be pointing to like a new direction for, for, for humans. But um, I, I'm afraid I get a little bit more uh, muddled uh, going any further than that. So what what else is there to say about these? Uh, these? Katie, run with it. I think that it, I think it is about the future. And, and I also, and this never occurred to me until we were talking about this today, I think including that is also a way of showing us that even though we're caught up in this super intense narrative of the battle between the free Navy and Earth and Mars, um, and that everything feels like it's in the balance, that it's reminding us that it's it's a much, much, much bigger universe that now is much, much more accessible because of all these ring gates. And so even though that story, this huge story we've been following for all these seasons is a big deal that because of the protomolecule, because of the ring gates, that it's not the only story in town, that there you know, are infinitely other things that could be happening that could be of uh, just as much moment as what we've been watching about the characters we love so much for so long, which is why they make a point of showing us this scene that includes no one we know. <laughs> And, um, and it feels completely random. Um, and I, I think that's good. It's just, it, it's reminding us that, that uh, there's a larger, a larger universe out there. And, and, it, and it's, it's building on the science fiction idea. I think that is really interesting. There's, um, there's certain stories that, ha, uh, that posit that it, rather than humans going to other worlds and then you know, sort of dominating those worlds and forcing and adapting those worlds to suit our purposes, what might or could happen is that humans are changed in order to fit their environment, right? That we are the ones who have to adapt and become different in order to fit into a new type of place, a new type of space. And I think I think that's part of what it's pointing to as well is it's, it's the new versus the old. You've got you've got the 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 same old war going on right back in earth solar system meanwhile on this other planet as you were saying katie it, it like it's it's other things are happening and in this particular case it's it, it's i think it's pointing to um it's saying hey like we don't have to do things this old way and in fact in a new place you can't you will be forced to become something different than you were um and it's a kind of cool, imaginative, um, loose end as the series comes to a No, and, I, and just as a uh, complete aside, uh, when I wrote the phrase resurrection dogs, honestly, I was just being lazy and saying, okay, I don't get this plot element, so I'm going to give it a dumb name. But now I'm, I'm thinking of uh, like the failed evangelical youth group t-shirts of the uh, early 90s. And, uh, you know, I wonder if someone actually made a Reservoir Dogs, Resurrection Dogs, Evangelical T-shirt knockoff. Anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Um, Katie, I said that we're not going to overlap much with the Christian Feminist Podcast episode on The Expanse, but now I'm going to break that promise. 
because I want to hear your take on one of the big movements within the Amazon series. Once it moves away from sci-fi, once Amazon takes it over, several times on the Christian Feminist podcast episode, people said that the central theme of the series is that humanity has to abandon tribalism and learn to live as one big solar system spanning human tribe. But at least in the Amazon seasons, the last couple, that trend seems to reverse a little bit so that friends and family and crew and other smaller connections between human beings seem to win out in some of these moral disputes over planetary loyalties or even to humanity as a species. Am I missing something here or does Amazon throw things into the reverse ethically? I, I do think you're right that there is that little bit of dissonance um, between kind of those two eras. But I, I'm going to argue that actually it can fit. Um, one, and you do, you do see moments like that. To me, the most obvious moment that, that points that up to me in the last season is when um, they have an opportunity to take out Marco's ship, just obliterate it which would essentially end the war between the free Navy and earth and Mars, thus benefiting belters and Mars and earth, the entire human community. Right. And Holden kind of cancels out the war. He deactivates the warhead because they realize that Naomi's son is on board. So he literally sacrifices the chance to save everyone, to save one person. Um, it makes me think of the whole discussion in the infinity war movies about how they, the vision realizes, Hey, if um, people, if I just get, if you just destroy this gem that's keeping me quote alive, then um, we could defeat Thanos and Captain America doesn't want to do it because he's like, we shouldn't trade one person for everybody. It's like that kind of classic trope. Um, and so you do see those moments that's where it seems to be prizing personal relationships over the larger good or the larger human community. But I think the way that you can actually piece those two themes together in a way that works is that I actually think at the end, they may have been putting the focus on those small relationships. It gets really local to remind us why it's important for everybody to pull together to try to save mankind. Because, you know, in the earlier seasons, you've got this widening universe and this protomolecules, this threat that everybody is going to have to begin together to defeat, right? We're all versions of human, right? Like we're very different. Belters born in space can't even handle gravity, but they are descended from people from Earth, as are the people from Mars. So it's a bunch of people who are all human versus the protomolecule, which is completely alien. Um, near the end of the series, now you've got these gates, these ring gates, so people could be getting out, you know, into the far reaches of the universe. And so, to some degree, all of those, all of humankind, is beginning to pull apart. And because they've been so ugly to each other, there's been all this fighting between these three factions, Earth, Mars, and the Belt, we might then, as viewers, begin to ask, okay, but why should we all band together? <laughs> why should we all be, keep trying to save this? This seems terrible. Um, why, you know, why should we try to unify? And I think that then when the, the answer to that is because humans matter and are valuable to each other. And so then you get this super intense, small focus on individual relationships between two people or three people, or, you know, in Naomi's case, like the love of a mother for her son. Um, and that really tight focus to me is a way of reminding the viewer who's been with the series for however many, you know, six, seven seasons. This is why we've been trying to get everybody to band together and, you know, defeat the protomolecule or just stop fighting amongst themselves. It's because of relationships like this. That's why any of this even matters. That's kind of how I see it. What do you guys think? Take it away, Carter. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I don't really, I think I have much to add to what you said there, Katie. Um, that was, that was good. Um, uh, I do have some more to say about the ring gates, but um, I think that's uh, coming up here where we're kind of transitioning to that. Um, <laughs> so Yeah, it is. It is. And, and I, I guess what I would just kind of rejoin, Katie, is that, I mean, it seems like the monsters in the early seasons are the ones who would put their ambitions and their personal connections above the larger good. And it seems like, I mean, especially in the scene that you just narrated, to be sure, but also then, you know, when Amos, you know, redeems Clarissa, when, you know, uh, you have these moments where, you know, characters choose very close relationships over, uh, you know, sort of much larger scale, sometimes solar system scale, sometimes human species scale 
connections, um, their humanity shows through because they will chose the, choose the local over the global. And, you know, it seems like, I mean, for all of my loathing for, you know, Marco and Eros, I mean, you know, I mean, his intelligibility as a villain comes precisely from the fact that uh, none of his personal connections mean anything uh, whenever they get set next to, you know, his vision of himself as the savior of the entire belt. So I, 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 I can see your point. I can see your point. I also, I, I also still really feel like it got thrown into reverse those last two seasons. I mean, I, I, that's a valid viewpoint. And I think you could take it, you could definitely take it that way. And um, particularly when it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to have made it better or worse, but just really, it, it, it does have a different feel at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to say that it became inferior. I'm not saying, trying to say it became superior. I am saying, I mean, something changed radically as, as far as the ethical. Ah, what what do I want to call? I'd be interested it? I mean, to know the ethical I, scope of the show. How... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, but because you because it came from books, and because you have book writers who are very very tied in closely with the show, oh, yeah. I feel like that'd be very a question involved. I would want to ask them, right? Because if that if that it was a transition that was happening, that kind of abrupt transition and that ethical focus, presumably that happened with their blessing. So what does that mean, right? Like, I, mean, I don't know. But but on a, I mean, okay. So I don't want to be too um, Alex Jones tinfoil hat here. But um, if a corp- corporate overlord, <laughs> Bezos, is now bankrolling the show, it's not. It shouldn't be terribly surprising, I guess, that um, the earlier moral tenor of the show, which was very much focused on critiquing exactly that kind of corporate overlord um, and powerful person uh, shifts as the show goes on. I mean, am I, am I wrong there? Am I, am I again, tinfoil hatting that? (laughs) I I, I don't know. I mean, you know, how directly would he have been involved in this one production? I don't know, but he's a fan of the show and that's the only reason it got saved in the first place. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. I, I didn't know that production history. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I, you know, and and, li- and like I said, I mean, you know, and I, I hope I didn't come across as saying that, you know, it's it's somehow betraying itself or anything like that. Oh, I think no, it's a, yeah, I definitely think it's a not. fascinating shift, but I think it's definitely a shift. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, Carter. So I'm going to let you talk about the ring here, uh, because for all of its importance in the seasons leading up to the six episode finale season, in those final episodes, it becomes, in my view, little more than a MacGuffin. So everyone wants to get there first. The bad guys have already set up traps to guard it. And eventually its power ends up turning on the bad guys and obliterating Marco and Naros. I told you listeners I was going to do spoilers. We already talked about the resurrection dogs a bit, but do you think that this element of the story deserved more in these final episodes? Okay, so um, I'll first say probably. But <laughs> um, I okay. So, as a complete and utter lover of all things science fiction, um, the ring gates is—it's not a new idea. Um, th- this kind of idea has popped up well before the Expanse series was created. This idea of um, of either a wormhole or a series of wormholes, or even the idea of. Um, of a network of basically wormhole creating gates that can transport ships across the universe. Um, the alternative is a kind of hyper warp drive like in Star Wars or Star Trek. And, and of course that that is very much magic as well because it, uh, physics. <laughs> um, uh, so the ring gates are, are again, are not an original idea really. And 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 so it's it's not like we should be looking at them as, as some kind of, um, innovative new hard science fiction thing and and that's actually the, the really interesting part of the rings in the first place in the expanse is that the proto molecule and the the rings are the the soft sci-fi part of this of this series um the expanse has been noted for its h- harder science fiction elements it's much more plausible physics and all of these things um but then there's just that little bit of magic <laughs> fantasy uh, in, injected in, and that's the ring gates and the proto molecule. Um, just to give it that extra. I, I'm going to stop you and say you know, I wouldn't call yeah. that a little bit. 
but keep rolling keep yeah. rolling <laughs> yeah I, I, okay so, you know, so uh, <laughs> other than that how was the play mrs lincoln yeah i keep rolling yeah. keep rolling <laughs> sorry soft touch over here um, um which i'm here for i'm totally here for the for the fantasy magic um quote unquote science fiction uh i'm i'm a i'm a trekkie and i'll die one um <laughs> you know you, you got to have a little of that but um so, so all of that to say, if it's a MacGuffin, it's not like it's a terribly innovative one. And I'm sure the authors of the books and new, right, and the creators of the series, they know they're not doing anything terribly innovative with, with the rings. The thing that I think we have to keep in mind when we're looking at the rings as a plot device in the final season is that any kind of plausible effect of the rings in terms of like, how are they going to change humanity? Um, has to be projected out way into the future. So we've, we've, we saw in previous seasons already what the immediate effect was. Everyone's running to get them. There's sort of a new colonialism that is happening, right? Um, where everyone's, everyone in the solar system's rushing to get through the gates so they can grab their piece of Africa. I mean, their piece of the galaxy um, you know nice, it, it, nice. It, it felt yeah it felt very it felt very much i used to teach um 20th century history and it felt very much a part parcel you know everyone's parceling up you know some other places that don't belong to them te technically um and so here's here's what i'm going to say about the rings in, in terms of the end of the season, I don't think there was anything else they really could do with them because I think anything left you could do with them plot wise has to be again, projected out way into the future. And my understanding, even though I haven't read all of the books, my understanding is, is that the very next book in the book series jumps ahead 30 years. And so I think that is, that is the more interesting thing is to jump way ahead and see, okay, what's happened now that people have had a chance to use these things for several decades um but unfortunately they just couldn't really do that ending the show here um but you know maybe we're going to get a movie or or something in the or an expanded expanse universe where we can see that in the future but for now i'm i'm not sure they could do more uh, but tell me why i'm wrong <laughs> well I, I and i and i think when i wrote up these show notes and I wrote these show notes up a while ago because our schedules just couldn't get together. But I, I, I think that this might be my best explanation for why the rings become a MacGuffin is because the ethical vision contracts again. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I mean, in the, huh, in the okay. penultimate and anti-penultimate seasons, the fact that there is, that there are possibilities on the other side of these ring gates really kind of dominate the show's imagination. But then in the sixth season, the sixth episode finale, pardon me, it becomes very much a family drama again. And it's really hard to do a family drama when there are entire potentially galaxies on the other side of this ring gate. So, I mean, you know, what, what ends up happening in my view is, uh, you know, the show says, well, just uh, don't look over there for six episodes. We're gonna have this family drama. And then we're going to end it before we actually look back out to the other side of the rings again. Well, isn't that a, isn't that kind of making a point of its own though? Um, so uh, bear with me for a second. We've got these ring gates and we could go all Star Trek and start exploring the universe, right? Sure, sure. But, but what does the, what, what does a lot of humanity do? Um, keeps fighting the war in the solar system. <laughs> um it's a it's a bit it's a bit actually nihilistic it's a bit um dark that we've got this opportunity to expand out into the universe and take all the space and all of the all of the planets that we want and people are still bickering and fighting here in the solar system um i, I think it's it, it, isn't that a commentary all on its own the fact that so many people are not taking advantage of these things I think it could be Katie jump in there. I don't have a whole lot to add because I'm not totally sure what I think about the, that kind of shift in focus away from the ring gates in the last season. Cause I agree with you, Nathan, that I do think it's essentially a family drama in the last season. Um, I, I, I don't, 
I don't necessarily think of it as full MacGuffin, though mainly because I think they did much better stuff with it in earlier seasons. Um, I actually really enjoyed season four, which is when they spend the entirety of that season through the ring gates on Illus, which is a new colony. Um, and so I think they did better stuff with it earlier. And I, I do think it kind of receded in, into the background. And, and I would and agree. I, I yeah. Don't, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know what I think about that, but I, I, I do I do think you're right that um, I think both you guys are right. I do think it happens and I and I do think it, it does make it seem more cheap, Nathan, more like a, just a device. But I also I can see what you're saying, Carter, about that that being some kind of some kind of commentary um, on humans <laughs> that um, given a universe of possibilities, we still are mainly focused on ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and I think that that's that's also a, a, a good commentary. I, I think that's something we need to remember. Well, and and just to return to my irritation with Marco Inaros one time, and I realized that that has dominated this episode, and I apologize for that. But I mean, what was this grand possibility in seasons four and five becomes basically a wily e. coyote trap in the final season, where you know Marco Inaros sets this <laughs> trap for all of the inners, and then it ends up blowing him up. Yeah, and I'm thinking, yeah. come on, come on, <laughs> Wiley Cody trap. That's uh, fantastic. Uh, it it is kind of it is kind of um, sort of funny how unimaginative he is as a villain too. Because like his whole thing is w- the ring gets to control the gates. I'm not even going to try and do the accent because the. the um so it's very difficult to do <laughs> um he um he wants to control the rings but it's like okay literally people could just pass through these and go to any planets you want and you're still trying to con- you're trying to control this like how is that even a, a, a reasonable even remotely reasonable position to hold for earth mars or the belters like it doesn't make any sense that you would then tr- you would try to police this thing that is meant to give you the freedom to go across the universe it's it, it's so it's kind of bleak because yeah it is a, it, i mean it, it's bleak but it's also realistic that's how the humans are. We, we, it's like someone saying, well, we, our one country gets to control all the oceans. No one else gets to use the oceans without our say-so. And it's, it's, we, we do that. And it's absurd. <laughs> okay, soapbox. I'm, I'll step down now. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, guys, I'm, I'm looking at the time and we probably need to start wrapping up. So here we are at the end of the Christian Humanist Radio Network's second episode talking about The Expanse. And the second episode on The Expanse featuring Katie Grubbs. But the territory that we still haven't even touched is still, wait for it, expansive. Now, I've waited a long time to make that joke, and it's a very bad one. But nonetheless, let's go around the horn here at the end. Katie, what is the big question, the big important character, or anything else that we could probably do an entire episode on still and uh, once you have talked about that for a little bit, pass it along to Carter. Okay. Um, I was going to mention some things about season four and, and how interesting I thought it was, but we actually talked a little bit about that already. So I don't know that I'm going to go there. The only other thing that I, I think is worth exploring that we haven't talked about in this episode and that we I don't think we touched on at all in the CFP episode is that this is a show that seems really interested in the idea of people who choose to make their life among a different type of person or choose to make alliances that that other people don't think make sense so you've got holden who is from earth who makes this conscious choice to even though he has a loving family on earth he makes a conscious choice to live his life in space among mainly people from the belt um and that is interesting i I think that's probably the only interesting thing about holden because to me, he's kind of boring, if I'm being honest, <laughs> um, you know, and Agreed. then you've got, yeah, okay. And then you've got Naomi, who's, you know, born in space. She's, she's bred in the belt. She's a belter to her core. But as the series goes on, she kind of allies herself and identifies with more and more and more with, you know, with the crew of the Rosinante, who are people from Earth and Mars, um, you know, and, and then the other one, um, the other person that I, I tend to think of, too, is um, Fred Johnson who has the most boring name ever 
um, who is also someone from Earth who has made his life in the belt. And there's a lot of discussion in some of those kind of middling seasons about if belters can trust him or not because he's from earth and he and I, you know there are some conversations where he gets angry and basically is trying to say look i've spent my entire life up here you have to believe me when i say that i believe in the welfare of the belt but because he's from earth there's always a distrust there and i think that could be a there could be a fruitful discussion to be had about what the series does with that with the idea of taking people who are from one place and then transplanting them and then contrasting that with somebody like bobby who's so martian it hurts and is completely, you know, devoted to her kind of homeland, if you want to say that, um, who then is kind of ripped out of that context. She doesn't necessarily voluntarily go live amongst another type of people. She's kind of forced to open her eyes, to broaden her perspective, and ends up allied with all these other different types of people. But that process for her is painful. Whereas with some other people like Holden or um, somebody like Fred Johnson, it's a very conscious choice that's made for what to them seem to be positive reasons. And I just think that's interesting. Carter, what do you got? Wow, I don't think I can top that. Um, uh, I think that was that was awesome, Katie. Is I mean, thanks. When, yeah, when you think about it, that's how they are learning empathy and learn and learning how and becoming able to sympathize with all of the actors involved. It's it, there's no aside from Marco Anaros, like there's no evil country right there's no mordor in this um it's like you can see the bad and the good in earth and mars and in the belt and and that's that's yeah that's that's the only way that you get past the hostility and um is to actually meet and talk to someone who is from the other side um that's a good message for our times <laughs> um my my uh, th- my addition though would be um drummer um <laughs> And I know we've, uh, I know that she was discussed on the the uh, CFP episode, um, but her whole arc is just really, really interesting to me, which is why she's probably, um, probably the most popular character, um, at least with a certain segment of folks. Um, but the, the especially her ship, how how that whole. Um, that whole dynamic worked where she has um, in the later seasons after Fred Johnson's killed and she leaves to do her own thing. Like she, she, for a while she commands the um, former Mormon ship that becomes the battle cruiser, right? The Belter battleship. Um, uh, but then of course she, that is destroyed and she ends up, bec- um, she ends up uh just going and being a pirate or a salvager essentially with this group of people. And they form this kind of weird, um, it's like a weird polyamorous family kind of on a ship of just belters, but it's, this is all, um, this is all a way of me getting to what I really want to say here. And that's that I think the social dynamics um, of being in space is is something that could be explored more on the show and that I think uh, could be discussed. Um, we, th- we think that, you know, the way we do life in society is, is the, the only way to do it. How does that change when you live in a completely different context and a completely different place? Um, uh, one of the cool things about the show is it reflects it, like it tells us how biology changes, right? How belters, you know, the grat and Martians, like they're taller, their muscles and bones are lengthened. Um, so like there's this real biological change from living in space, but how also would social structures and, and constructs change were, you know, humans to live in space and live in this radically different environment. Um, that's just a cool science fiction idea. And the expanse does such a good job of exploring that through people like drummer and through the Rossi crew and through Mars. But I think, I think the show could have explored it a lot more. And I think we could definitely have done a whole episode just talking about all of the different um, dynamics that are created simply because these are people who exist in space. Um, so that's my, that's my plug. <laughs> Very good. And for me, yeah. it is the question of human identity that, that fascinates me about this series. I, I think that uh, we have talked about and the series explores pretty nicely uh planetary identities and criminal identities and political identities and gender identities um but one of the things that kind of remains in the peripheral vision of the show i'm going to call it that even though it could have been 
explored more is what is it that remains after the protomolecule bonds with the mouse sister in season one? Or what is it that remains when the kid gets brought back by the resurrection dog in the final episode of the final season? Uh, one of the things that, you know, just shoots through this series over and over and over again is radical alteration of the human person. And, you know, one of the things that I, uh, I, I had no idea what to do with it. And honestly, I think this is part of what bothered me so much about the resurrection dogs is, you know, is this an allegory for what happens to human communities uh, when they are in space, like Carter focused on? Uh, or, I mean, you know, is this more of an existential horror story uh, in which, you know, you basically have, you know, something akin to space zombies that, you know, the... Uh, whatever it is that we're going to call human identity gets replaced by something else when, you know, I mean, we call it the proto molecule, but I mean, presumably it has some name of its own from wherever it is that it comes from. Uh, is this just a part of normal life out there beyond the ring or, or was this a terror to other space civilizations as well? You know, I mean, in other words, uh, is the hang up on, the continuation and the persistence of individual identity, uh, a blip in the imagination of this show, or is it something that, you know, no matter where you're from, uh, it matters. And, you know, obviously there are limits to what you can do with the TV show. There's limits to what you can do with the podcast. So listeners, uh, I think that, uh, we've got at least three very interesting episodes that, uh, may or may never come to be. So, Right now, though, uh, we are past the boundaries of an hour that will never more come to be. So I want to thank Katie and I want to thank Carter for uh, jumping on with me today. Um, depending on when this show uh, drops, uh, the next thing you hear will either be uh, Michael and David and me or it won't. Uh, so logicians out there, you can work on that. Uh, Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, you can find us at uh, christianhumanist.org. You can go to our Facebook page. Uh, the network still does have a Twitter handle, although, although I don't know who has maintained it last, at CH Radio Network on Twitter. Uh, but this show is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, our audio editor for this, our long-suffering audio editor today is Michael Farmer. And in behalf of Carter Stepper, in behalf of Katie Grubbs, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>